Welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I love our Thursday shows, and in great part because we have one guest joining us on Thursdays, and we do a much more in-depth discussion. Uh, so I'm so grateful that we today we have joining us a gentleman who's been on the show before, but not for a while, named Raven Raymond Ibrahim, and he will join us in just a moment via Skype, but it's just like having him here. I also want to thank every one of you who has joined America Can We Talk. You can join this show, America Can We Talk, by going to our website, America Can We Talk, Talk.org. For a very, very minimal charge, $50 a year, you can become a member of this show and you do receive discounts for our upcoming summits and on our products, but also uh, you're just part of supporting the show and keeping us rolling, keeping us speaking up for America. So I want to make that little plug. Consider if you enjoy this show, uh, consider joining at AmericaCanWeTalk.org. Our guest today, I'm going to do a little bit more lengthy introduction than I might normally, because we're going to talk about a topic that has not been on the front burner in the last year or so in America. I mean, it seems to me, at least in doing this talk show, the subjects that dominate the news, they're pretty much border security, election integrity, COVID policy, critical race theory and LGBTQ issues in public schools. But the subject of Islam and Islam in America and some of the challenges that are faced by um, countries around the world dealing with some of the refugee populations who uh, hold stridently to Islamic teachings, it really hasn't been. Jihad just has not been in the news. However, as they say, even though we're not, not paying attention to Islamic Jihad, there are people who do support it who are paying attention to us. So I guess say Raymond Ibrahim, I'll tell you very quickly about him so that you can know why he has so much expertise. So uh, Raymond Ibrahim, uh, he is, first of all, a widely published author. I'm going to list his books for you in just a moment. But um, he was born and raised in the United States, but he was raised by Egyptian parents who themselves were born and raised in the Middle East. Uh, he's, the, he has unique advantages from having that background in his life. He has equal fluency in English and Arabic, which is an amazing thing. I'm talking reading, writing, speaking, because he's able to read ancient Arabic texts himself and understand rather than having to rely on translations made by others. Uh, he also has an equal understanding of Western culture and civilization uh, versus Middle Eastern, kind of the mindset of the Middle East. So he brings that kind of background, just his life story as his education. Uh, he has a bachelor's and a master's, in, both in history, focusing on ancient and mid uh, medieval Near East, uh, dual minors in philosophy and English, so very well educated. And one thing I love about him was one of the main uh, of his mentors uh, during the time he's getting his education uh, was Victor Davis Hanson, just widely regarded as one of the most prominent scholars really in America, commenting on America and American culture. So he's uh, trained with him. Um, as to the books he's written, um, I usually have them here, the ones we own, which I think we own all of them except the one that hasn't come out yet, but I don't have them today. Uh, but he's the author of Sword and Scimitar. Oh, look at, oh my gosh. 
Awesome, Ziggy just did that without me even asking him. Sword and scimitar. Okay, this is uh, his most recent book, and we he joined me on the show when it came out because basically what it does it traces the history in the um, uh, from the founding of Islam until today about all the uh, various efforts by Islamic jihadists beginning at the very beginning, followers of Muhammad, in spreading Islam by force. It is a just factual history of things that people don't know much about. But it's really the, the history of jihad since the founding of Islam. It's just a, a great, great book. Uh, he also is the author of Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. And before that, the Al-Qaeda Reader. And the book we'll hear about today uh, is a new one coming out in July called Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. So please, let's welcome to the show. So glad he's here to join us today, Raymond Ibrahim. Hi, Debbie. And hi, everyone. Thanks very much for that gracious introduction. Well, it's so nice to see you. I'm just so glad you could join us today. And uh, we were emailing ahead of time about topics. And so I just want to jump right in and start with something that you recently wrote about. And I think it's a, a good, um, like a jumping off point to hit a lot of the things you want to talk about today, which is the United Nations declared recently that March 15th was going to be International Islamophobia Day or or, or not celebrating Islamophobia. Islamophobia. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and you wrote about that, just just raising questions about why United Nations would designate one particular day to protect against uh, Islamophobia. So, just I'd love sure. to hear a long, good reaction to why you did not think that was a great idea. Sure, Debbie. Um, so, you know, on the surface of it, and a lot of people have already indicated that it doesn't seem right and balanced to create one special day for one religious group only. Um, you know, Islamophobia technically means, you know, fear of Islam. And of course, when you use the word phobia, it just means irrational fear. So it's an unjustified fear is what they're trying to say. And um, because of that, supposedly Muslims are being persecuted, et cetera, et cetera. And um, but the angle that I wish to bring up, which I think really underscores the immense hypocrisy of the United Nations, is something little known to most people, which is the fact that um, the day that they chose, March 15th, commemorates or um, remembers the anniversary of probably the worst terrorist attack on Muslims, which is um, March, two March 15, 2019, when an Australian man entered a New Zealand mosque, or actually two mosques in New Zealand, and it killed a total of 51 Muslims. So clearly that's a very horrible and, um, you know, it's been widely condemned by Westerners, and obviously not just Muslims, all around the world, and it's something that deserves to be condemned. And uh, that's the, you know, that's the pretext, supposedly, for creating March 15th, and it's called uh, formally International Day of Combating Islamophobia. And so the point I'd like to make is if one attack from a Western man or a non-Muslim on Muslims in their mosque that killed 51 people was enough to create this special day for Islam, what about all the attacks that Muslims have done? Let's say, we can talk about all religions, but let's just focus on Christians. Um, and in fact, I'm preparing an article and I did a lot of research for this. And in just about the last 10 years or so, in countries that vary from Egypt and Nigeria and Iraq and Syria to Indonesia and the Philippines, in Russia, in Western nations, if you combine it all, there have been dozens of Muslims invading churches and killing Christian worshipers, mostly um, on Easter and Christmas, intentionally so. 
And I added up and tallied the numbers of the people who died, forget about those who were injured, and it comes out to nearly 1,000, okay? So one attack, which is obviously an aberration because how often do Westerners or non-Muslims go and bomb mosques and kill them? It's a very aberrant singular thing, but that was enough, and 51 dead Muslims was enough to create this big Islamophobia day, and yet dozens of attacks of Muslims killing innocent Christian worshippers that have killed a thousand gets no mention, no day. Where's, where's our you know, combating Christianophobia day, for example? Uh, so it's very, it's very hypocritical. It's very, and I think the reason for this, of course, is even worse, because whereas the attack on the mosques in New Zealand are in fact an aberration, it's a freak thing. I, don't, I can't remember another time where a non-Muslim went and shot up a mosque and killed 51 people. Um, they're trying, the UN and others are trying to present this as a pattern. That's why it's a phobia. It's not just a singular aberration. They're trying to present it as that. And in reality, what is a pattern? Attacks on Christian churches, for example, as I mentioned, because those, the thousand that died and, and those attacks that I mentioned are really the tip of the iceberg. There's so many, as you probably know, I collate every month a Muslim persecution of Christians report. And I don't, I can't remember a single month in the last 10 years I've been doing this. So for about 120 reports where more than one church was attacked in the Islamic world. Most of them are not fatal, and that's why they get zero mention. But, you know, the, but there is a pattern of Muslims attacking churches and killing Christians, and that is, gets completely ignored and sidelined by the UN while we all um, you know, emphasize the, the freak accident of one Westerner killing Muslims. I love that point. In addition to that, in the United Nations, there's an organization of countries that have Muslim-majority populations. Uh, it's the, referred the OIC, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, and they are part of pushing that. It, it's a, it wasn't just that a, a bunch of random people of a variety of uh, religious backgrounds decided in the UN we're going to have uh, the um, International Day to Combat Islamophobia. It is a mission pushed by Muslim-majority countries with the intention of conveying this impression that Islam, Islam is a religion constantly under, under attack or at least under threat of attack. Do you agree with that? Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that's very accurate. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation is very influential um, on the UN. And the irony, again, is though the, the countries that make up the organization, the OIC that you mentioned, are amongst the most radical <laughs> Islamic nations. You have Saudi Arabia, which, you know, if you look at their curriculum, all it does is teach hatred for so-called infidels. You can't have a single church or a synagogue or anything on their on their land. Um, you have Somalia is in it, which is in Afghanistan, which are considered around the world the second and third, the first and third worst nations uh, for minorities, Christians. If you're outed as a Christian, you get killed instantaneously. So these are the countries that are coercing the other countries in the UN. Um, to basically present themselves as victims. Um, and again, you know, while that is true, I don't think that exonerates the other UN nations for actually following suit and appeasing them in this manner. Well, the thing is, the other nations are afraid not to follow suit because they're going to be called then attackers yeah. or, yes, yeah, they're, so they and not be attacked. I saw one other point. I think that, yeah, this was your article. Um, on American Thinker, you made the point, it was on your website too, uh, you made the point about how there was one gentleman who from India, the uh, permanent representative to the UN from India said, why can't we just call it religiophobia? And, you know, yeah. Great idea, go ahead. Yeah, in other words, if, if that's the issue, if the issue is that there are some people who don't like other people based on their religious identity, and that would encompass Islam, and so it could fit, 
That, okay, you can do that because there are people of, of, of all religions. I, I just mentioned what's happened in Christians. But, uh, you know, Sikhs and Hindus have also, they say, experienced discrimination and violence and so forth. So it would make sense, you know, you know religious minority uh, combating, you know, persecution or discrimination against religious minority day. Fine, that would make sense because it, it would be across the board. Um, but to single out one nation or one religion um, and it, it basically privileges it and it puts it on a pedestal. It's now untouchable. And the whole idea, you know, the whole point of Islamophobia, that charge is to shut you up. That's all it is. Um, you know, so I was giving you all those statistics about how many Muslims have killed Christians, a thousand versus 50, which is basically for every, for every Muslim who died in those mosques in New Zealand, um, 20 Christians were killed all around the world, mostly the Islamic world by Muslims. Um, and so combating Islamophobia day is precisely about not getting that information out because I'm being an Islamophobe by actually stating statistics and facts. Um, and that's what they're trying to shut up. But other, other religions, you know, realistically don't need a whole lot of protection because they don't warrant the anger of other people because they don't go around bombing and killing other people. So they tend not necessarily to get attacked. But Muslims, if they do get verbally attacked or criticized for the religion, it is because of what Islam has been doing and has done historically, which is, you know, the intolerance and the violence and the persecution. So, there, so that's what Islamophobia Day and the whole concept of Islamophobia is all about more censorship, which I think we're all familiar with in different fields. Uh, brilliant point. You had another great article on American Thinker. I'm glad you're right there. Really, it's a, <clears throat> it's a wonderful site. And you wrote one very recently talking about Islamophobia is as old as Islam. And I'm really glad you're making that point about the point of, of having Islamophobia as a commonly understood term and luring people into believing there's some problem that justifies giving a, a word for it and a, a, a holiday to celebrate it is to silence criticism of Islam, which has been, and I, I love you to talk about that, you, why you wrote this, what the point of Islamophobia is as old as Islam. This is not a new tactic that started at the UN, correct? Right. No, yeah, correct. So the whole, the, the concept of even invoking the word Islamophobia, is like I said, it's, it's an irrational fear that is not justified of Islam or dislike of Islam. Um, and the idea is somehow it just happened recently and a lot of people will tell you, yeah, it's because of the, you know, strikes of 9-11, 2001, that soured a lot of, let's say, Westerners towards Islam, and now the whole religion has been, you know, demonized. That's the, that's the framework that the purveyors of this word, Islamophobia, want you to think. The reality is, if you go, as I do, and look at the historical sources, and I'll focus just for Western Christian sources throughout history, the, the fact is, from the very start of Islam, everyone who was non-Muslim criticized the religion along the same lines that you and I might, based on our knowledge of Islam. Uh, so, you know, as far back as the 8th century, less than 100 years after Muhammad died, um, you, have, uh, you have people like, um, you know, Theophanes, the Greek Byzantine chronicler, and, uh, you know, St. John of Damascus, writing, you know, about how Islam is about violence, about how their prophet just... Um, all he did is preach, you know, he, he claimed that God gave him revelations, but it was really about empowering himself, which, of course, if you can read between the lines, that is the story of Muhammad's career, uh, including in their own, you know, biographies, the Sirah and so forth. But after that, if you go down the line, you know, people that you would never even think about, Marco Polo, you know, he criticized Muslims and Islam along the same lines about, you know, the they talk about things like jihad. They talk about, you know, how Muslims and jihadists 
were uh, eager to die and be so-called martyred so they can go and copulate with 72 supernatural virgins in heaven. The, the Ain Hor, who's still, you know, Islamic jihadists today mention as a motivation for their, um, you know, martyrdom operations. And, um, you know, someone may say, well, and then this goes, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Winston Churchill, to give you more modern names. Um, but in that article, I give you, I, I put a lot of the names, which I think would shock people to see that they had such negative things to say about Islam. But the important point is, I think someone would just dismiss everything I'm saying and say, well, of course, these were, you know, white Christian patriarchal males. They hated everyone who was not them. And that's not true, because even in their own writings, they actually praise non-Christians, non-Europeans. Um, I remember, for example, Marco Polo praises the Brahmins of India. Um, as you know, for various traits, and he speaks very well of them. So, you know, it's always Islam that people from the start have had an issue with, and the reason being because Islam actually calls for their destruction and enslavement, and they know that, and they've experienced that, and they've documented that. So the idea that Islamophobia, I mean, in, in the words themselves are fine, you know, Islamophobia, fear of Islam, which is probably a healthy thing, um, and an expected thing, but the idea that they're trying to convey is that it's irrational. You know, it's like, you know, fear of what, you know, claustrophobia or xenophobia, that kind of thing, you know, that you, you should not have this fear. But people have had that fear from the very start up until now, and for good reason. I have a basic point that we've been over in the show numerous times and you've joined me, but I want to be sure and get it out before we launch into all these other great topics is the violence that we see currently in Islam, we uh, all the jihadist attacks that happened in recent time and within our memory in Europe and America, these are things that have resulted from the teachings of Islam from the time of the founding. And it, they spring from the teachings actually from written by Muhammad, uh, uh, recorded in the Quran or in the other, uh, on the, uh, other Islamic texts that are considered legitimate. The idea of committing violence to force people to convert to your religion is is a fundamental Islamic tenet. I just want to have you talk about that a little bit because and then I want to launch into everything else we're going to talk about. But I think, honestly, when 9-11 happened in America and even when people read about jihadist attacks today, a lot of people think, well, it's probably because these poor people were a minority and they were being oppressed, probably because Christians were intolerant or white people were intolerant. And there's, there's not yet sufficient knowledge in the world that the violence committed on behalf of Islam since the time of its founding is based on and justified by the teachings of Islam. And that's what I'm hoping you can embellish a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very important first premise uh, before we, we continue, for, especially for someone who's not familiar with what we're talking about. Um, you know, so, so the, the succinct version, of course, is that it is true that the Islamic Islam scriptures, which is which is the most important, is the Quran, but equally important, especially to Sunni Muslims who account for 90% of the Islamic world, is what's called the Hadith, which are volumes of uh, purported sayings and doings of Muhammad. And, you know, based on whatever he said or did, that becomes part of Islamic law or Sharia, meaning do it, don't do it, and so forth, just like with the Quran. Um, so, long story short, the Islamic scriptures that I mentioned, um, both the Quran and the Hadith, are emphatic that all non-Muslims are inherent enemies, that it is Islam's duty, Muslims' collective duty, to war on them, and that is what the word jihad means, okay? And jihad truly does mean struggle, and it's ironic because all these apologists will tell you, well, jihad, you know, they translate it as holy war, that's not what it means, it means struggle. They're actually right, but that actually makes it worse. 
because the connotation has always been holy war, physical war. But it is true, and, and Muslims understand this, that the denotation means struggle of any sort to empower Islam. And that's where we can, you know, we can talk about that later about what's happening now, because sometimes what's, what's happening now, especially in Western nations, is not necessarily physical jihad, but it's a different kind of jihad. It's, it's a struggle to empower Islam through other means, whether it's by the pen, as they call it, jihad of the pen or jihad of the tongue, propaganda, jihad of money, funding jihadist organizations. So there's all kinds of jihads, but the bottom line is they're all about empowering Islam and subjugating um, non-Muslims. And in fact, that's the un that's the understood mission of Islam to take control of the entire globe, and it never ends. Um, sure, there's you know there's times of when Muslims are weak, and obviously they can't go around declaring jihad and so forth. And that's when they you know there's there's a whole teaching and doctrine and takia and dissembling, and that sort of thing. But the bottom line is um, hostility for the non-Muslim is all over the Quran. Um, and not because there's a grievance, not because non-Muslims attack Islam, but because they're non-Muslims. In fact, the Islamic State, um, they, they have a magazine, Dabiq, which they used to publish. And um, one of their articles was titled, Why We Hate You and Why We Fight You. And to their credit, they were honest. And they said the first and foremost reason that we hate and fight you being every, every non-Muslims, but every non-Muslim, but they were talking about Western peoples and Americans, is because you're non-Muslim, they said. And they quoted the Quran saying as much. Quran 64, for example, cites Abraham, the, you know, the patriarch, or Ibrahim, my namesake, as telling, as saying to his kinsmen and his, and his, and his family before he left them, um, I hate you and I will always hate you until you believe in Allah, the Islamic Allah, and nothing will be between us, between enmity and warfare, and so forth, okay? And you have other Quran verses that say, do not befriend Christians and Jews, it actually names them. And whoever befriends him is one of them, meaning he becomes an infidel. You have Quran 929, which says, fight the people of the book. Again, that, that, which is a code for Christians and Jews until they pay tribute and feel themselves humbled or subdued. So it's constant war. So this is when you hear that, you know, oh, no, these groups, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and so forth have hijacked Islam or they have a radical interpretation. That's not true. What I've just said is mainstream history. Uh, or I'm sorry, mainstream Islamic doctrine. Speaking of history, history validates what I've been saying. So doctrine is the abstract, um, you know, theory of enmity. The history is just one long trail that just um, is a manifestation of that enmity and warfare and jihad. And so, um, you know, in the seventh century after Muhammad died, jihad was proclaimed and all of North Africa and Southwest Asia, the Middle East, into Spain, into France, and later under the Turks, all the Balkans, and Russia under the Tatars, Muslim Mongols, all were conquered, some temporarily, you know, Spain for about 700 years, North Africa till now. And people forget that all of North Africa and the Middle East were very Christian. They were more Christian than Europe was in the 7th and 8th centuries. So it was a massive and traumatic loss. Um, and in fact, if you look at if you look at the map of the uh, Christian world in the seventh century and dawn of Islam, three quarters of it were was eventually swallowed up and Islamized. So today, when we talk about Egypt and Syria, Morocco being Muslim nations, we forget those are actually originally uh, very Christian nations that were conquered and slowly turned, um, and in some cases quickly turned into purely Islamic nations, uh, like in North Africa especially. Uh, so. The history, and when you look, and, and this is documented in the book that you mentioned, Sword and Scimitar, and the subtitle tells it all, 14 centuries of war between Islam and the West. 
And it just and it's also important to note that these attacks were not just well, you know, one one civilization warring on another, big deal. Europe did that too, inner wars between you know England and France and so forth. Uh, but what it, what's important to keep in mind is every single one of these attacks that were documented throughout history were articulated on the same concept that ISIS uses, which is you are infidels, it's our duty to conquer you, you have three choices, convert or become Vimese, which is you know second-class citizens and pay tribute and so forth, or fight to the death. They all spelled it out. So when ISIS and these so-called radical groups do that, they're just walking in the footsteps of uh, Islamic history and these great caliphs and sultanates and so forth. They're not doing what they want us to think, um, you know, these other, these other non-Muslim groups that want us to think Islam's peace. No, they're actually being the truest um, representatives of Islam as it, was, as it was understood historically and practiced. That was such a great summary. Such a, I appreciate that so much. I remember when you were on the show Thank before you. talking about sword and scimitar. I think there was a map or more than one map in the book that uh, depicted areas we all in modern life right now look at and say, well, yes, that's, a, that's an uh, Islamic area. That's a Christian area. And you were pointing out all of these areas that we recognize are Muslim dominated or Muslim controlled were actually, I know I'm repeating what you just said, but that it's very graphic to look at a map and realize we've become submissive to the idea, well, I guess that's just a Muslim nation, when actually it was it is Muslim majority because of jihad, because of Islamic jihad and the forcing of people just to capitulate and, and accept or accept domination. I, I mean, it's the most amazing thing. And honestly, Islamic, I don't know what the forces at play were, but I, for example, myself, I remember learning a little bit about the Crusades and never had any instructor tell me, well, actually, the Crusades were mostly the Christian nations trying to push back against the jihadists who were trying to take control. I really, I don't think I knew that until the last two years of my life. And I'm pretty nerdy. I read a lot. And I, I did not know that. And I, that's an amazing thing that has managed to kind of capture the world's understanding or misunderstanding of that history. It's, it's, it's I'd amazing. Like to, I'd like to elaborate on, on what you're saying, actually. And uh, in fact, that is exactly what they do. If you're, if you're educated in the West and you, if anyone who hears about historic conflicts between Europe and Islam immediately begins with the Crusades, right? That's, that's where it all starts. And um, the understanding is you got these, of course, racist, xenophobic, patriarchal Christians traveling all the way to the Islamic world, the Middle East, killing and butchering Muslims because, well, you know, they're just imperialistic and that's who they are. They just, you know, they're, they're racist, right? That's, to, to use today's terminology, of course. Um, what they don't tell you is that for four centuries before that, Islam was hacking and chipping away at the Christian world, that the Crusaders understood this that in their mind it was a defensive warfare meant to try to recapture and reliber liberate um, former Christian nations, uh, the Holy Land, Jerusalem being chief among them, and that in fact right before the Crusades and what really um, precipitated it was the Turks, the Seljuk Turks, you know, the latest iteration of Islamic radicalism at that time in the 11th century was running amok, and literally according to the sources in Asia Minor, Anatolia, what is today Turkey, and what used to be a very Christian region, that's where St. Paul wrote most of his letters to uh, Asia Minor, um, the Turks were literally hacking and killing hundreds of thousands of Christians and torching thousands of churches so that the Eastern Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor, contacted the Pope and, and various knights begging them for aid. And that was 
the concept. And again, you, you never get that, right? And you just get that they went and they're the, and it's the same thing with the idea of colonialism. So right around in, you know, in the 19th century or 1800 is usually the date used with France going into Egypt and the ascendancy of, you know, European might vis-a-vis -vis Islam taking over much of North Africa and other regions, Islamic countries. Uh, they don't tell you that right before that, for example, the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean were terrorizing France as well as the United States in the Barbary Wars on the same logic. Your infidels, the Quran tells us to do, to enslave and kill you, plunder, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's written out, including that's what Thomas Jefferson said in his letter to um, Congress about why they were attacking American sailors. So that, that's, again, that's the missing context of why colonialism happened. It was actually, it was seen almost like the Crusades, or more specifically, it was about defanging Islam once and for all neutralizing it and, you know, for lack of a better word, civilizing uh, and acculturating Muslims so they can break away from this sort of tribalistic jihadist thinking where everyone who's not them must be killed, which is why it's ironic during the colonial era, Muslims were much more moderate than today uh, in a lot of these, especially in the more cosmopolitan cities in Egypt and so forth, uh, because they had sloughed off their sort of Islamic identity, where now it's coming back. That, again, great summary. I'll quickly say for our radio listeners, in about a minute, you're going to go off to a break. It's a three-minute break. Do not go away. Come back after your break because this interview will continue for another half an hour with Raymond Ibrahim. For everybody else online, we're just going to keep on rolling. Okay, so, Raymond, one thing that you uh, wrote about, and I want to really, you know, we, so this is great history to have, a great platform. So today, here we sit in 2022, and the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, went to visit and speak in, I think it was Malta. And, um, and he, at, when he, as he, when he went there, he actually did not have the usual setup behind him. And normally when he speaks anywhere, he's got something behind him depicting the cross, a symbol of the Catholic or the Christian church. And yet when he went to uh, speak, yeah, it was Malta, um, he didn't have that. He didn't have that behind him as he's speaking to this large, and I'd love to have you talk about you know, why he didn't, which I know you wrote about why he didn't, but also how in the world does the head of the Catholic Church get bullied into not depicting his religion to keep peace with people he's speaking to who happen to be Muslims? I, I find that kind of breathtaking. Yeah, so it was in Malta, it was recent, maybe two, three weeks ago. Um, he went, uh, he made a stop there and he gave a talk. And it was very apparent in the backdrop that he had, there was no crucifix. And usually there is. Um, and, and, and along with the crucifix, other Christian symbols and possibly statues and so forth, icons. Um, but there was nothing. What, they, what he had instead were, uh, it, basically, it looked like the ocean with these red dots, okay? And, and the um, designer of it said, well, that represents the, you know, the Mediterranean Ocean and the red dots are life jackets of Muslim migrants trying to reach Europe. So basically, it was about sympathizing um, with their plight. Um, and as I noted, you know, I wonder if he was sympathizing with the plight of those Christians who actually, when they try to come to Europe as refugees uh, and they're mixed with Muslims, the Muslims who are seeking sanctuary from Europe because they're poor victims end up killing the Christians. And one notable instance, which actually is very applicable to Malta, because I think they were going to one of these Italian islands, possibly Sicily, but a, a large boat of migrants from North Africa um, when, it, when it came there, long story short, they found out that they had drowned like dozens of other migrants because they were Christian. They threw them out and drowned them and killed them because we don't want infidels 
with us, the logic being. And yet these are the same people who are, are seeking sanctuary and asylum because they, they feel victimized. And that's what the Pope himself, he's going along with that narrative. So he didn't have the cross, he didn't have any symbol, Christian symbolism, and it was, it was specifically because he was speaking to Muslims. The Archdiocese of Malta said that. Okay, so instead of being a Christian or even a Pope, and um, you know, standing for his faith and trying to represent it, he didn't want to offend them. And there's another reason I think. I think he was smart because the and here again a little known fact is that it is it's it's not uncommon for Muslims to come across across a crucifix and destroy it. And so there have been dozens of um, anecdotes of Muslims, especially in Europe, destroying the cross, whether it's on a church, whether it's in front of a church, whether it's inside a church cemeteries, breaking crosses off, and so forth. And this really stretches back to Muhammad, who had a, supposedly, according to his sira or biography, an immense hatred for the cross, uh, because, of course, the cross is, uh, represents everything that Islam rejects, which is Jesus being the Son of God, that he was crucified, he was resurrected, etc., etc. So Muslims, and Islam specifically, have a dislike, to put it mildly, of the cross, and, and, and there's numerous instances of them destroying it. So perhaps... Francis, who was there to advocate for them as poor victims, didn't want a scene um, of them lashing out and thereby, um, you know, compromising his mission. Um, but and and this it is just, it, Pope Francis. It's, it just doesn't end with him because right before that, he made another comment uh, about how you know he was talking about war and the horrors of war and everything he said is agreeable. You know, war is bad. But then he goes and says, and there is no such thing as a just war either. Just wars are bad. And that's absurd because the whole the idea of just war, which really originates with Catholic thinkers, is it's defensive. So the Crusades were deemed just wars because they were going to defend innocent Christians who were being slaughtered and enslaved and liberate former Christian nations. So to this pope, even that is not you know good enough. And um, I guess he wants people to be doormats and just keep getting abused and, and abused. And, and one last point about Malta, the irony is that that little island, this is a very tiny island, was subjected to one of history's worst bombardments by an Islamic power. The Ottoman Turks um, in the 16th century went and completely laid waste, waste to it. And it was defended by the Knights of St. John, a very small force. And uh, you know, until this day, the name of uh, you know, the, the, the Grand Master of the Knights, Valette, has become the name of the capital of Malta. And this, and, and this you know, the Grand Master, right before the battle, the way he described it, you know, was kind of the correct Christian way. He said, these people are coming to enforce the Quran. This is a battle between, you know, God and Satan. And, uh, you know, if we don't win, the, the, the gospel will be snuffed out, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, yeah, that's true. That's what history teaches wherever Islam has gone and conquered. And now you have the Pope saying the opposite. He's saying he doesn't show the cross. Uh, he wants Europe to welcome even more Muslims in many of them who are still engaged in violence and intolerance, tax on churches and so forth, rapes of women and all that. And he doesn't want people to engage in just war theory, which is self-defense. Um, so I don't, I, you know, to me, that's not Christian at all. It's simply mind-blowing. And you know, what I was reading, when reading your article and others about this uh, visit to Malta, it sounded like the Pope is validating submission. He's yeah. saying, I'm not going to, don't, I don't think my Christian faith is anything special. I'm sure not going to, I don't want them, to, I understand if he wants to protect 
crucifixes and valuable things that they're there they're going to be broken or stolen or something it's like i guess you can argue he was trying to protect property but you're sending a signal to the islamic population i really won't stand for my faith and i really don't want you to be mad at me so i'm going to kind of pretend it doesn't matter very much i mean is, is that i mean is that an exaggeration yeah. no 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 that's that's very that's very accurate and you know how do you think muslims who are zealous about their faith how do you think, how do they respond to that? Do you think they respect it and try to reciprocate? Or do they actually have even more contempt um, for people like that? And I can tell you it's the latter, absolutely. Um, and the irony is, you know, he took on the name of St. Francis and a lot in popular, popular culture presents St. Francis as some sort of hippie and, you know, very passive and, you know, not, not for war and all that. But he actually traveled to Egypt and other Islamic nations with the cross in his hand, confronted the caliphs and the sultans, called on them to, you know, abandon jihad and Islam and embrace the true faith of Christ and so forth. So again, at least, you know, there's this uh, sort of representation, bold stance for the cross, for the, for the gospel, and that's completely missing. He's more, of a, he's more of a secular humanist, the way he talks and acts, more as opposed to the so-called vicar of Christ. Absolutely. It, it is truly, I don't happen to be Catholic, but I have Catholic friends who are deeply disappointed in this Pope, just can't hardly believe that he doesn't seem to stand for the Christian faith. But I want, you know, it's an interesting thing. So we've done, you've done a great job describing kind of the, uh, the theological roots of jihadist um, attacks around the world. And then also just the, uh, the, your book, The Sword and Scimitar, that really gives detail about the, the various uh, uh, jihads throughout history and the attacks on, on Christianity. But even today, I mean, the Pope is one story today. You also wrote recently about, in uh, Egypt, this killing of a Coptic priest uh, on the streets of the city. And, and for, it, uh, it appeared completely unprovoked. It isn't like he had, you know, said something bad about any other group, but he was literally uh, physically assaulted and killed in the streets of Egypt. It appears to be by, uh, I assume, a Muslim refugee there. And I, I'm just, I, I, I don't want to sound like a cupcake or anything, but I don't understand what someone, what an Islamic jihadist believes they're accomplishing by killing a priest. You'd think they would be worried they're engendering anger and prosecution. But they're, so I'd like, I like to explain why he did that. How about that question? Sure. Uh, well, we have to start off with the fact that it happened in Ramadan, which we're still in. And, um, and that, you know, again, once again, underscores what Islam's about. Ramadan, of course, the most, most non-Westerners think it's just a, it's a holy month, and it is for Islam. And they probably think of it as along the same lines as Easter or, or Christmas uh, for Christians. But what happens is because Muslims do get, uh, become extra pious during Ramadan, well, attacks on infidels is a part of piety. It's part of Islam. And so what happens is, you know, in my mind, what happened is because the Egyptian government naturally and as usual is suppressing the reality. Whenever this happens, and it happens very often, they just say, oh, the man who did it is crazy. And, 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 and of course, it's not just Egyptian government that does that. It's Western governments and so forth. Whenever they can, whenever they want to suppress the true motive, they just say, oh, well, he's crazy. And so apparently Muslims are the craziest people because whenever they attack someone, they're always characterized as being crazy. But in this story, um, it was a couple of 10 days ago or so, and a Coptic Christian priest, about 56 years old, married, Orthodox priests are allowed to be married, and he has children. And he was walking with his, I think, Sunday school gathering somewhere in Alexandria with his family and, and the students. And just a Muslim man lunged at him with a knife, stabbed him three, four times right in the throat, killed him. And that's it. And of course, as I said, the Egyptian government 
and even Western media would try to make you think this is some sort of aberration. This, the man was insane. But the fact is, this is not the first Coptic Christian priest to be killed in broad daylight. In fact, and as I wrote, maybe two years ago, a very similar uh, story occurred where a Coptic priest is walking in Egypt and a man with a knife just started chasing him and stabbing him until he finally killed him. And, uh, you know, just to be clear that it's about religious animosity, he carved a cross on his forehead. Okay. And these stories are not uncommon in Egypt and other, other Muslim countries. So there's, you know, Coptic Christian priests and clergymen, and not to mention the average everyday Christian Copt, gets killed and attacked randomly in the street. Um, and so that sort of thing happens. But again, the, connecting it to Ramadan, I, I think that's the, the ultimate reason uh, that it happened. And again, it really shows you, you know, another thing that happens in Ramadan, and I, I was watching it right now, is Muslims, clerics, and so forth love to praise the jihads of history where Muslims uh, were victorious. And they say that happened on Ramadan. So, for example, the Battle of Badr, which Muhammad undertook, or the conquest of Mecca, again, by the hands of Muhammad, and, and the conquest of Spain and so forth, all of that happened or was initiated during a Ramadan. And Muslims are immensely proud of that. I watch shows about it and they talk about it. And again, you know, just to try to get you into that mentality, imagine, you know, being in a church for Christmas, or Easter, and all of a sudden the, the pastor or priest starts talking about the wonderful wars that Christians waged and how they conquered and killed non-Christians and took their land and enslaved their people. That's, that's you know, to give you an analogy, if you can wrap your head around that, um, th that's what that means. So it's not, for me, it's not that mentality that's celebrating warfare and jihad. And these battles that they talk about, it's not defensive. You know, you hear you have, on the one hand, you have Pope Francis saying you can't even engage in just war. On the other hand, you have Muslims celebrating unjust wars where Muslims conquered and annexed um, non-Muslim regions simply because they were non-Muslim regions governed by so-called infidels. So they had to conquer and enslave and kill them and so forth. Um, so really, I think that should underscore the differences between the two religions and, um, you know, the singularity that is Islam. Okay, you know, um, I want to talk one other kind of current iteration of this um, seeming intolerance or, or this censoring of people who are criticizing Islam and kind of carrying forth of the mission of Islam to silence criticism and silence people who um, are um, and to just essentially encourage the honoring of Islam above other religions. You mentioned something I hadn't even seen the story before about Facebook censoring a Christian woman or Christian women who were are trying to write about how Christian women in Muslim majority countries are frequently subjected to assault and sexual assault, and Facebook is trying to silence them. Can you just tell that story? Sure. Um, the organization, the name of it, it's a it's a it's a Catholic charity actually, and um, I wrote about it. And the article is, is forthcoming, so uh, I don't have it, but it's uh, you know, action in need or something like that. But anyway, the point is, and it'll be out soon on my website with the documentation is um, that this organization wanted to get the attention of UN people and so forth. And so they wrote, um, you know, some art articles documented about how Christian women are being persecuted all throughout the Islamic nation, Islamic lands, because they suffer from a double whammy. Not only are they infidels, they're women. Okay, so, you know, they're the lowest of the low in the Islamic hierarchy of things. Um, and I, you know, I myself, before I was familiar with this organization and their campaign, um, could tell you, yeah, that's that's how it is, because I've written and read about uh, how horrible it is for Christian women in the Islamic world. So that definitely is true. And then they, so they were complaining how Facebook is either suppressing them 
um, shadow banning them or outright dropping and, and concealing their articles and in short censoring them. Um, and, you, and you may wonder why and what, what's the purpose. And, you know, to connect it, I've, because I write about this topic myself, Muslim persecution of Christians, I've experienced the same exact thing with Facebook, where they would just, especially, I write about other topics dealing with Islam, but when I write about Muslims persecuting Christians, those articles either get completely banned, and I've, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, where I was locked out for X amount of time, and the note said, you know, you posted content that doesn't meet our standards or something like that. And there was nothing graphic, it was just an article about Muslims attacking and or killing Christians in the Islamic world. Um, that was taken down. Also, increasingly, I'm being shadow banned when I write this and I get people saying, I haven't seen you active in months, even though I post on my articles on Facebook every week and so forth. So that definitely is something they're doing to me and to that group. And I'm sure to all kinds of other groups that highlight things like, you know, the persecution of Christian women and the rapes um, under Islam. And what's worse, the worst aspect, you know, that's half of it. The other half of this problem, and most people don't know this, is Facebook actually allows Muslims, especially in those languages that Westerners are not familiar with, Arabic, and, you know, Farsi, Turkish, and so forth, to actually put the most hateful content, hate-filled and hate, you know, hate incitement towards infidels or whoever. And even some of them, I, I linked to one, um, where as a Muslim man calling for the beheading of Christians because they spoke out against Muhammad. That actually gets a pass on Facebook, unless it gets unless it becomes it's translated into English and then people see it and it gets flagged, then they take it down. So on the one hand, you and, and, and you know, this very much fits with what we've been talking about all throughout. On the one hand, you, such as the UN Islamophobia issue and censoring people, um, you can't say that Christians or non or whoever, no, and it's not just about Christians, or Hindus and Buddhists or non-Muslims in general, uh, atheists being attacked and killed by Muslims, that has to be suppressed because that's hateful, but Muslims can actually incite hatred and call for violence, and that gets gets a pass. So you know, it's, a really, uh, it's a really bizarre state of affairs that we're in right now. It is a bizarre state of affairs related to that, and just generally speaking, how the media suppresses stories that may cause people to be concerned about Islam. I think I sent you this article, but there is, uh, in Sweden right now, uh, very, very violent riots occurring, been occurring for a week uh, because some group announced that they were going to, I believe they actually did, burn uh, the Quran. They burned some group that, does, I guess, doesn't like the uh, Islamic um, influx of refugees uh, in Sweden, went ahead and they, they burned a Quran and the riots all over the country because this occurred. And I was just to make the point, you know, um, this is the mindset that I believe this is the case, the mindset that says, not only do I, if Muslims want to view the Quran as their holy book and they think it is, you know, infallible, whatever they think, they're allowed to do that. But they have a notion, everyone living around them who, who does not embrace the Islamic faith has to follow what they say, cannot be insulting the Quran. Whereas I would imagine if there were to be any religious group in America that chose to burn Bibles, I mean, I might think they're bad and they're evil, but you wouldn't have riots in America or any Western civil, civilized country, any Western civilization country, because we recognize, okay, they don't have to like our Bible and it doesn't hurt us. But this is that mindset that I think is so important to try to convey. It is a notion everybody has to follow the rules and everybody has to respect Islam, even though you don't, you don't embrace religion at all. And I don't know if you have any commentary or thoughts about what's occurring in Sweden, but it's very yeah. violent riots, and the media is not covering it in this country. 
Well, well, that last part's not shocking, obviously, for reasons we've discussed, uh, which is, you know, maintaining their narrative that Islam is innocent, good, nonviolent, and everyone else is bad, hence the Islamophobia. But the reason Muslims uh, think everyone needs to, you know, follow the rules, as it were, is because that's how it is in Islamic society. Uh, in Islam, uh, if you have an Islamic, you know, state, and, and until today in, in all these Islamic countries, you know, Islamic law teaches if you're a Jew or a Christian, you can maintain your religious identity, but you have to be second-class citizen, okay? First of all, you can't show your crosses, you can't, you know, show Christian symbols, you can't preach Christ, you can't do any of that, you have to pay tribute, you have to, you know, if, if, it actually says in the Islamic text that if you're sitting in a chair and a Muslim wants it, a Jew or a Christian has to get up and give it to him, and so forth. Uh, so I think this mentality is just uh, infused in, in you know, the, the collective consciousness of Muslims. So when they go, even though they're guests, you know, seeking often asylum and refuge in non-Muslim countries, uh, I think they can't get over that. So if you do something as extreme as offend the holy book of the Quran, how dare you? You're just an infidel. And so obviously lots of them uh, lash out. And, you know, that's definitely not to be expected. In other countries, you the, the government itself, in Pakistan, for example, and other Muslim countries, they have these uh, very strict blasphemy laws that can get you killed or at least thrown in jail for life and abuse it, you might get killed by the mob. You know, in one case in Pakistan, they actually burned a, a man, a Christian man and his um, pregnant wife alive on the rumor, which apparently turned out to be false, that they burned some sheets of the Quran. Um, so, so that's the kind of mentality, and it's not shocking that it spills into <clears throat> Western nations. In Sweden, you know, I mean, I, I saw that article and um, it just reminds me, less than a year ago, actually Muslims, and a lot of them are from Somalia, burned two churches in Sweden. And in that case, there was no pretext and no grievance. It's just kind of what, you know, Muslim radicals do in other countries. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, attacks on churches, that's very common. You know, every month it happens. So it's to be expected. And um, and this idea that the non-Muslim has to, you know, get, get in line and follow our rules, it's just being it's the worst part of it is Western people are actually um, reinforcing it by appeasing, by trying always to be the nice guy, by by taking Pope Francis's advice that instead of being seen as well, look at them, they're so nice and magnanimous. Maybe we shouldn't be Muslims. We shouldn't be as um, intolerant and violent. That only confirms Islam's superiority. And that's how it's understood. And so and it's and it just exacerbates um, Islamic demands and um expectations of compliance. Uh, Raymond, actually, that's amazing. Your last answer segues with what I will want to ask is my last question. I will also mention for our studio audience, we have the opportunity for people to ask questions if you'd like. Somebody has the microphone, I do believe. My husband, uh, Eric, has it. And so we, you have the opportunity to ask questions. My last question is going to be, given everything you've described about Islam, and I don't know the size of the Islamic population in America, but I know many people will say, oh, I have Muslim friends, everything's fine here, all the concerns being raised are just somewhere else, other parts of the world, or maybe a tiny segment here. Um, so my two-part question, one is, isn't it accurate that any attempt or any humoring or, or uh, surrendering to pressure to uh, not offend Islam only encourages the belief that they can continue to press that, that press that people must conform to how they see the world and their values. But then what do we do in America today? I mean, do we, is there a more formal step that people can take or the country can take to try to stop the um, effort to uh, spread the, the kind of jihadist uh, thinking that they're watching in Sweden? Is that something we could be doing here? 
Yeah. Um, so to start at the first part of your question, um, you know, what's happening in America and, you know, all these people saying, well, I, I know Muslims and they don't do what you're talking about and all that sort of thing. So the first thing to keep in mind is, um, and I call this Islam's rule of numbers, is Muslim behavior very much um, accords with Muslim populations. Okay, so if you go, obviously, the Islamic world where Muslims are in the majority and non-Muslims are the minority, you're going to get pure Islam there. Okay, but let's, uh, if you go to Europe, where you have a larger Muslim populations in nations like Germany and France and Britain, uh, in some of those countries, I think it's about, or possibly even more than 10%, uh, you get a lot more violence, okay, and uh, you have these enclaves and ghettos and, you know, this real separation, and you get great and more vocal demands and so forth. You don't get, here in America, my understanding is the Muslim population is under 1%. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, African-American converts from jail who are not necessarily uh, as fervent uh, about their Islam as born Muslims. Uh, so based on that fact, you're not getting as much of that here, obviously, okay, because the number is still small. And so Muslim, you know, power grows with Muslim numbers, and it's, it's obviously it's common sense for them. Uh, so that's why I think a lot of people are – now, say, having said that, I'm not saying – that every single Muslim is violent and out to kill and subjugate. Um, if they are following the Quran and they're reading it and they're very serious about it, then they will share some of these hostile sentiments towards non-Muslims. But like people of all religions, a lot of Muslims are Muslim by name only. Um, you know, and so his name is Muhammad. Like you know, but he doesn't even read the Quran. He doesn't. So obviously, a person like that would not fit into what I'm talking about. And I'm sure there are people like that. Uh, so that's that's the issue I think here. But then you know it gets what I'm saying. It really gets muddled because then we realize that in Islam there's a whole doctrine that when Muslims are weak and outnumbered and under infidel authority, they should actually pretend to be friendly and to be nice and to be cooperate and to renounce even Muhammad and to renounce Islam and to even uh, in Spain just to give you an example the same the same doctrine after the Reconquista and the Christians had conquered most of Spain, reconquered it from Islamic uh, conquest earlier, you still had a small group in Granada of Muslims, but they were completely vanquished. And they actually, a fatwa came out and so forth, and they were all urged to renounce, renounce their Islam, to get baptized, and to be Christians, to go to church, to give their children Christian names, and so forth, but to maintain the hatred in their heart. And they did that for generations, to the point that Christians would complain that and, they, and I have this one one quote paraphrase in my mind, and someone says, due to their imposter prophet, they acted like better Christians than us, and yet in their hearts they were trying to subvert, you know, Spain back to Islam. They were preaching jihad in their in their homes and so forth. So that definitely is a factor. I'm not saying every again, I'm not saying every Muslim does that, but of course, if you do follow the teachings and the history and you're being true to it, that could be um, also an option. As to what to do, <laughs> well, that's a million-dollar question. I think, I think we are so compromised right now that we are at such an early phase that the very first thing we need to do is actually embrace what I'm talking about and embrace it as a fact because of the, I think the overwhelming majority of Americans, even so-called conservatives and, and so forth and right-wingers, as they're called, are completely oblivious to this. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, because there's you know, top, hotter, more urgent topics than Islam. But remember, and one historian called Islam is um, Western civilization's longest and most persistent enemy that ebbs and flows. And sometimes 
you had it was the chief attack and the chief uh, topic of the day, and then sometimes it's not like now, but it always is there because it's an existential um, hostility that's being preached. So I think the first step is at least to you know have the intellectual base correct and understand what we're talking about, and then hopefully, if some sanity were to come back to American politics, such such thinking can actually be implemented into some sort of rational policies. All right. Thank you, Raymond. I'll tell you, so our audience, we have a, a microphone over there. I think people may have questions. Um, I did want to tell people listening that, uh, do we, actually, Mr. Becker, if you can put up the little Chiron so we can see his website name, you can read his writings, right? Read Raymond Ibrahim's writings at his website, RaymondIbrahim.com. Uh, it's a great place to read everything he has. Also, uh, he's a distinguished senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute. I assume that your writings are at Gatestone, too. Yeah, they're great, yeah, great, great website. Yeah. Yeah, so read more about what he has to say. Love to have anyone who has questions. If you have the microphone in your hand, speak right into it so he can hear you. Um, thank you so much uh, for all this information. Uh, the Pope, I wanted to circle back to him because I, I'm trying to understand why he would do what he did. And Debbie had another speaker who kind of indicated a lot of the things that happen start with the Pope. And so do you think there's... You know, what is what is his motive, I guess, or, you know, what's behind this? Well, it's really difficult to get into his mind. You know, he'll tell you, I'm just practicing, you know, the teachings of our Lord, who said, turn the other cheek, and who said, love, you know, not hate, and so forth. So that, that will be his explanation. Now, to what extent does he really believe that's the truth, and that's what's uh, motivating him? Or to what extent is there some other factor that he's not mentioning? But the fact is, you know, Christianity, historically and doctrinally, all these things, you know, the turning the other cheek and all that was understood as an individual thing. And that's why we have just war theory. That's why, because without it, Christianity would have been, would have perished because you have hostile forces attacking. And, and this is very evident in the fact that, you know, when Jesus, uh, he, he praised the centurion, Roman centurion, ahead of the most militant army that was killing people left and right. He praised them without once telling him to quit the army. And the same thing, St. John uh, the Baptist, when um, you know some soldiers complained to him or said, what should we do to actually be saved? He didn't say quit the Roman army. He said, be content with your wages. So the idea that Christianity condones or promotes or calls for some sort of you know capitulation to anything and everything and becoming a doormat is just simply not biblical. Um, and it's not part of Catholicism either, historically. So why, so if he, whether he doesn't get that, which I find hard to believe, or he's actually, you know, he, he's pulling out and exploiting the, the peaceful verses um, at the sake of the, you know, the more cautious ones uh, for his own agenda, whatever that might be, um, I, I can't tell. Well, I was thinking Marxist or socialist or something along those lines, but I, right. I just didn't know. No, well, I mean, that's what many people would say, and I find all of that plausible, but not, not it's hard to tell, is that really it? It would make sense. Or is he really that naive? Um, if I had to pick, I would actually, yeah, I would go with what you're saying, that he is a Marxist and a socialist, and he's trying, he's basically acts like a humanist, a secular humanist, who has nothing to do with Christianity. Thank you. Anybody else with a question over there? Anybody else? Microphone, there you go. Talk right into it. 
So my, my question is, I've dealt with a lot of people, because um, I do a lot of community outreach or engagement, um, and I've dealt with what I call these fake Muslims. And when I say fake Muslims, these are the people, not necessarily the people like you're talking about, but they, they study the Quran and they call themselves the Nation of Islam. And when I talk to them, you're familiar with them. So when I talk to them, their objective is... Um, and I hear this directly from them and from their leaders. When the time comes, our orders are to kill all white people, all non-black people first, and then kill all uh, Christians that are left behind. How do we correct the mindset that is within those people um, in accordance with the studies that you've done? Yeah. Um so I agree with what you're saying, first of all, about the Nation of Islam and it being a very heterodox, putting it mildly, Islamic organization that definitely is not orthodox. And in fact, what you said technically is not Islamic. You're not supposed to kill a race. You're supposed to subjugate and possibly kill non-Muslims. Uh, so that, you know, that right there is obviously in conflict. And I think what's happening, unfortunately, is um, a lot of African-American youths who are in prison, um, Muslim missionaries uh, take advantage of whatever, you know, resentment they may have and they sort of try to infuse the message of islam as if it's a message about racial equality um and they use that paradigm so that's why all of a sudden the infidel in islam becomes a white man um and that's who you have to fight so uh, you know that's, i suppose that becomes intelligible but it's 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 not islamic even though i think real muslims non-african american muslims uh do that and exploit it just because they want foot soldiers um and i think i've read some studies about that and so that's, you know, that's what's going on with that. And the irony, of course, is that true Islamic teaching, while it doesn't pinpoint and pick one race to fight, it just picks non-Muslims, uh, is actually, and, and historically, there's a lot of racism. And uh, again, Islam is presented because Muhammad and Arabs are non-white um, in this context as some sort of, um, you know, as, as being sympathetic to blacks and, you know, being for it and wanting liberty and freedom. And that's just not Islam. Uh, there's a de definitely racism, uh, not necessarily in, uh, um, enshrined in Islamic teaching, but if you go to an Arab country, um, a lot of you know people will tell you about the kind of racism that goes on in, in, in those places, Saudi Arabia, for example, and how they treat you know Filipinos and Indians and whatnot. Um, so that's the irony. You know, you have it, Islam teaches violence against a specific other, but certain groups are exploiting it to get foot soldiers by saying Islam teaches violence against the group that you, for example, don't like or think is oppressing you. Raymond Ibrahim, I got to tell you, America benefits so much from your understanding, as I mentioned, introducing you, the fact that you grew up in a household where your parents had grown up in Egypt, you had familiarity with uh, traveling that region of the world, uh, then you pursued the education you did, you, and, and uh, to be, uh, I'm so impressed by being fluent in English and Arabic, that has to be a relatively unique uh, thing for someone who's dedicated, uh, as you have in your life, to trying to explain to I'm putting words in your mouth, dedicating your life to Western civilization to help people understand the threat that Islam can pose to our other, to Western civilization and the stability of our society. So I thank you so much. I'm so glad you're available today. Your next book coming out, Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. It's coming out in July. Is that right? Yeah, it's coming out in July, and it's uh, very much a, a follow-up to my last book, Sword and Scimitar, um, where I Sword and Scimitar, I looked at eight decisive battles between Western Christian civilization 
versus Islam in Defenders of the West, I look at eight, what I call eight decisive men, um, which is actually more important, which is the first uh, ingredient you need to have a successful battle. And I, you know, these are, some of these are, are popular names, though most people don't even realize their connection to Islam, like El Cid and Count Dracula, King Richard and so forth. Wow. Well, I would look for, and I, in fact, tell you right now, I'd love to have you back in the show when that comes out. Um, I just think that's an amazing thing. We need more of those people, of those right. type people then, here now, today, willing to be standing up and speaking up and, and, and not uh, engaging in conduct like the Pope, but instead standing up for <laughs> Western civilization and Christianity, at least the foundations of America. So, Raymond Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. They loved it. Okay. My very fine friends, we went slightly over our one hour, which sometimes happens. Actually happens a lot. I thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America, can we talk? truth about America. Can